Well, I want to tell you in advance, those of you who are been part of Gateway for a long time, and especially those of you who are close to me and to Diane and I, my wife and I, you know that I'm not a very emotional person, but I'm an extremely sentimental person. So if you ask me how I'm feeling, I don't have any idea. I'm probably a, like some of you in that regard. I, I think there are more men like that than women tend to be, but I'm unfortunately not often very much in touch with my feelings. But I cry all the time. I've told people that when I was in my 20s, I used to worry about myself because I never cried about anything. And then I don't know what it was. I had children. Maybe it was the shock or the utter disappointment. I'm not sure. But I had children. And after I had kids, I cried at McDonald's commercials. So this has been a, a tough period with Tom's passing. I was telling the worship team earlier, I remember, um, because I, I really believe this stuff. I'm not saying that I don't ever doubt it, because I certainly do. So if you're here and you never experience any kind of doubt or struggle or fear, thank God for that. Seriously, because the Bible actually talks about a gift of faith. I don't have it. So I sometimes struggle. But God always conquers my heart, and ultimately he will squelch and calm even my most intense struggles. Why was I telling you that? Oh, okay, so I believe this stuff. And a number of years ago, we had another individual that's been part of Gateway for a number of years that, that was a close friend of mine, and he'd been part of our worship team. He was one of Gateway's characters. And I'm sorry if you all did not get a chance to know him either. His name was Scott Causey. Scott died of a sudden heart attack. And it was really shocking to hear this news. And, and I went to the hospital, and Diane, my wife, was there with his wife, Maria. I walked into the hospital. I was the first one there other than Diane. He passed, and I hugged Maria, hugged Diane, and then I walked into the room where his body was, and I asked the nurses if they would leave. And I prayed for Scott to be resurrected. I said to the worship team this morning before the service, it didn't work. And Jordan and Nate said, well, I think we would have heard about it if it had worked. <laughs> we didn't need that information. <laughs> Yesterday, I got a chance to go be with Tom's body after he had passed, and I didn't pray that. It's not because I didn't have faith. I just, he's in a better place. And I was so profoundly confident of that, watching him. For the first time in my life, I was near or up close to or around death, and I, I honestly felt a little bit jealous of Tom because he'd already passed through the worst part of it, and he was on the other side, and now it's just all glory. The other thing that happened for me is I realized yesterday, when I was with Tom and also afterwards when I was with his family, I realized how high the stakes are for this. For us, for right now, for this week, for this morning, the stakes are really high. You know, five weeks ago, I think it might have been six weeks ago, Diane and I were out to dinner with Tom and his wife Becky and their son Kevin, who's also part of our church, and we had a delightful evening. At that point, we were praying for healing for Tom. 
A week later, this was an extremely aggressive cancer, a week later, I saw Tom and we left and I said to Diane, I don't think he's going to make Christmas. And two weeks ago, I saw him and I said, I don't think he's going to make the fall. And last Sunday, we were over at his house, worshiping and praying, as Jordan said, and I left and said, I don't think he's going to make Easter. Okay, on the one hand, he didn't. On the other hand, man, he did. This is going to be the best Easter of Tom's life. All right. We've been working our, our way through a series of conversations out of the book of Philippians. And I want you to look there with me this morning because we're going to end this series of conversations. We're in the last section of the book of Philippians. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to look. It's one of those little books toward the back of the New Testament. You know, if you reach Romans, keep going north. If you reach Hebrews or Revelation, you need to go south and turn back. If you don't have a Bible, if you'll go to your phone and go to your browser and look up mygateway.life, you'll find our information site. I'd love for you to go there because that's also the way we're communicating with one another. We're still working out kinks on mygateway.life, so thank you guys. Keep those cards and letters coming because we're trying to make adjustments as you, you tell us some of the things that don't work about it. But the sermons are on there, and if you go to the current sermon card underneath it, there's the text for today, I think will be in there. If it's not, then somebody just give me a funny look. And we're going to read Philippians 4, verses 8 through 20, and we're, we're going to pile together a section that really could be divided into at least two conversations, maybe three, but we're going to pack it all into one today. So we're going to skim across the top, but we're going to hear an amazing and poignant and powerfully applicable word for us today. Before we read, let me give you this. There are really four organizing questions. This is probably the best way for us to look at this passage because we're going to cover a lot of territory in a short period of time. So I want you to think about four questions as we look at this passage. Question number one, as we grow spiritually, what should we think about? Question number two, what should our rule of life be? In other words, how should we live? As people who are growing spiritually in our connection to God, how should we live? The third thing to think about is if we continue to grow spiritually, where are we headed? Where is this going? What's this going to amount to? Where is this taking us? And the fourth question is, all right, if we end up as spiritually mature people in the place where it's taking us, what's the byproduct? What, what's the spillover? What happens in our lives? Okay, we're going to read Philippians 4, 8 through 20. It's a couple of paragraphs, but we're going to go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. So let's stand together. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put that into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Okay, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. And remember, one of the occasions of this letter is a man from Philippi named Epaphroditus has brought a gift to the Apostle Paul to help him while he's in prison in Rome. And Paul is sending Epaphroditus back to the Philippians with his thanks and this letter. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. 
I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through the strengthener or through the enabler or through the one who gives me strength. Yet, it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I've received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering and an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Father, we're not here by accident. We're here because you have drawn us. So we ask again for that incredible, that miracle that you would speak and break open our chests and massage your truth in our lives. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, we've come to the end of this series of conversations, working our way through Philippians. We've heard Paul speak with incredible power and very pointedly to us, even though this letter is 2,000 years old. We've heard his challenge to move away from casual spirituality to all-in commitment to a life-giving relationship with God. We've heard two very prominent themes as we've worked our way through this book. The first one is, it's all about Christ. We've heard that theme repeatedly. We saw it show up in a couple of key places. In one place, we heard Paul compare the value of knowing everything in his life and history to the value of knowing Christ. And he said, everything over here is like rubbish. In another place, we heard him assess his situation. He wrote this letter from a Roman prison, by the way. These are not good conditions. And yet, we learned that the ultimate criteria by which Paul assesses his circumstances, all of his circumstances, was whether or not they contributed to the advancement of God's story. A second recurring theme in the letter is we, God's people, should be united, epically united. In one passage, he told us to develop the mindset of Jesus in this regard. What he meant is this. As we grow spiritually, we will grow in humility. We will look like Jesus in that regard. And by the way, we looked at various kinds of relationships. We even looked at working relationships and corporate relationships. And we discovered that humility is one of the keys to developing successful relationships in every area of life. The theme of unity also showed up when we talked about one of the specific conflicts in, in this original church that received this letter. While addressing that conflict, Paul said this, when we're connected to God, he is moving through us always, even when we don't feel it. So we cannot let our petty hurt feelings or our small-minded disagreements weaken God's work through us. Unity is key. We can't let anything get in the way of it. Two prominent themes. It's all about Christ, and we must fight for our unity with one another. Strive for it. Struggle for it. Invest in it. 
We talked some about how spiritual growth happens through these conversations. One week, we talked about habits that foster spiritual growth in us. We blasted through these real quickly. You may remember if you were here, we gave a, a list of growth-promoting thinking and behavior patterns. We said, use resources with wisdom and purpose. Practice a creative devotion life in your own life and practice. You're not going to grow spiritually if you don't. Invest in community. Nourish other people out of your own personal wholeness. So get healthy so you can nourish others. Open our lives to people in need. Uplift God's character. Let our life be a screen on which the character of God is displayed. And finally, tell others about Christ. Then the very next week, we picked through one of the sections of Paul's letter and we identified seven helpful hints. I promise I wasn't trying to aim at seven every time. Directed at how to grow spiritually. Those hints were to remember that our self-salvation projects don't work. To adopt a healthy disregard for our own accomplishments. To encourage our passion to know Christ, to stoke it, to flame it. To develop a holy dissatisfaction for where we are right now. To forget the things which lie behind and to strain forward to the things which lie ahead. Finally, we looked at one of the great benefits of spiritual growth. Last week, we heard God tell us that if we work our spiritual lives, it's possible, it's literally possible to experience God's peace. We will hear about another benefit this morning as we work through this last section. So if you've been with us, I hope you will remember some of those conversations. This has been what one commentarian called the most encouraging letter in the New Testament, and I think he said that for a reason. Now, as we said, the best way to organize the end of this letter for us this morning, because we're going to cover a lot of territory, is to answer four questions. So the first question is, as we grow spiritually, what should we think about? Let's look at verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Generally speaking, this is easy, he encourages us to think about good stuff and leave no room for bad stuff, right? So I want us to make note of three things about this. We're going to pass through these quickly. We could spend an entire day talking about the thinking process, disciplining our thought life. But I want you to think of three things this morning about our thought life. Number one, three observations. He makes this instruction, notice, comprehensive in scope. Whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, Think about these things. No matter the source, if it's pure, if it's right, if it's admirable, put it in the brain and soak on it. If it's not, don't leave room for it in your thinking. You know what's interesting about this? This list is a pretty typical ethical list from Paul's Greek philosophical contemporaries. So in other words, I'm speaking especially to some of you parents who occasionally ask me this kind of thing or think about this kind of thing. Does it have to be Christian? No. If it's true, if it's noble, if it's lovely, if it's praiseworthy, it doesn't have to be Christian. I can remember a number of years ago when our kids were younger, there were Christian families that would struggle over whether or not to let their kids read Harry Potter. And it depends on your reason for answering yes or no to that question. 
But there are epic themes of good versus evil in the Harry Potter novels. And I think there are good lessons for children and young people to learn in those books. Javen Bell is a part of our congregation, and Javen has taught me quite a bit about understanding and reading fantasy. One of my boys, my boys are grown now. Uh, those of you who have been around Gateway, you know my stinky boys, but Jordan is one of my children. Jordan leads worship here on Sundays for us often. But my middle son has read voluminous amounts of fantasy. And Javen said to me one time, you know, the thing about fantasy is every piece of fantasy has a worldview. So you, what you have to be careful of more than the particulars of the fantasy, what you have to be careful of is the worldview that the author is communicating. Because they're, they're communicating something important symbolically about the world, about God, about reality, about love, about truth. Is there such a thing as truth? And the critical thing is to know the worldview of the fantasy writer. Parents, that's much more important than whether or not it has goblins in it or creatures like that. So. I started doing something which incidentally ended up being very good for my relationship with my middle son. I started reading fantasy with him. When I first started reading it, I kind of had to hold my nose a little bit. I didn't understand it. And by the time I'd read a little bit, I was like, what's next, Dawson? I thought they were awesome. But it gave us an incredible opportunity to talk about worldview stuff and to remind him, you know, Dawson, the kind of things that we want forming our hearts, the kind of things that we want shaping our character, the kind of things I want you building your life on are, are things that are true and noble and lovely and right. Hey, when that guy was talking about, what do you think was underneath that? You know, that's probably not a true way to look at the world, is it? Those were great conversations. Whatever is true, whatever is lovely, put it in the brain and soak on that. Second observation I'd make about this thought life business is this is the front lines of spiritual growth. This is almost the point of this entire series of conversations where we would say, if you miss everything else, don't miss this. Just like getting physically healthy always requires the right diet, getting healthy spiritually always requires the right mental diet. What we think about, what we dwell on, what we imagine is quite possibly the most important factor in the development of our character. This is the front lines. Now, for you as an individual, your thought life may not be the most important issue. For some of us, dealing with past hurt is the most important issue in moving forward spiritually. For some of us, overcoming some addiction is the most important issue etc. But for all of us, disciplining our thought life is crucial, and for some of us, it's the most crucial thing. It's the front lines of the spiritual battle. A third observation about this thought life business is this means, if this is true, this means that we must choose the source of our thought life very, very carefully. We've got to choose very carefully what we decide to think on and what we decide to watch on Netflix and what we decide to dwell on. And imagine, this is why every week here at Gateway, we dive into the Bible. We believe it's the final authority on truth and life. It's inspired by God. It's authoritative for our lives. And it's an almost endless source of truth, nobility, rightness, purity, loveliness, admirability, excellence, and praiseworthiness. This week, I saw, 
an awesome list. I won't give you the whole list, but I saw an awesome list of assumptions you would make if you based all of your thinking and your view of reality on Hollywood movies. So this is what you would believe if you based your entire view of reality on Hollywood movies. The ventilation system of any building is a perfect hiding place. The Eiffel Tower can be seen from every window in Paris. A man will show no pain while taking the most ferocious beating, but will wince when a woman tries to clean his wounds. Persons knocked unconscious by a blow to the head, even a severe blow, will never suffer a concussion or brain damage. It's always possible to park directly outside the building you're visiting. Any lock can be picked by a credit card or a paperclip in seconds, unless it's a door to a burning building with a child trapped inside. All bombs are fitted with electronic timing devices with large red readouts so you know exactly when they're going to go off. <laughs> Medieval peasants had perfectly good teeth. <laughs> this might be my favorite. It does not matter if you're heavily outnumbered in a fight involving martial arts. Your enemies will wait patiently to attack you one by one, but while dancing around in a threatening manner until you've knocked out their predecessor. <laughs> If you build your life and your worldview on Hollywood, for instance, these are the kind of things you would believe. We must choose the source of our thought life very carefully because it's the front lines of the spiritual battle for us. So all of that time you're imagining what you would do with the money when you win the lottery, all of that time that you're imagining how nice it would be to be in a relationship with that coworker who's two cubicles away, all of that time is not only wasted, it's terribly damaging. There is a universe of things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and excellent and praiseworthy. Take those, put them in the brain. Everything else discard. Second question, how should we live? If we're going to be these people who are growing spiritually, how should we live? Listen to what Paul says. So whatever, again, he has this litany. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put that into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I want you to notice how stark this is when compared to what we just read. Let me point this out. Notice here that Paul has just been incredibly comprehensive in his instruction. He sounds like an open-minded, expansive thinker who likes all good thoughts no matter where they come from as long as they're good and right and true. But here, here he makes it clear that in terms of character, the scope is narrower. Do what you've seen or learned from me. Follow that example as I follow Christ. Evidently, there is a distinctly Christian way of living. There is a distinctly Christian way of behaving. And you and I are to follow that practice. Listen, those of us who are Christians should be the least judgmental people of all. First of all, we have an understanding of just how patient God has been with us, just how much forgiveness we need and have been given. And part of God's activity in us is reminding us of that truth. Secondly, our Lord told us very specifically not to judge one another. And then he demonstrated this kind of lifestyle repeatedly. Having said that, we live in a day when tolerance is considered the highest virtue. And while tolerance is a wonderful virtue, it is in fact a value for Jesus. It is not the highest virtue. Love is. 
And sometimes love says, if you keep doing that, you will scar your heart and potentially ruin your life. Let me help you stop. Because that's not good. The world wants us to say, you know, if it's your thing, that's cool. But Paul says, look, what you saw me do, do that. What you learned from me, do that. Put that into practice. There is a distinctly Christian way to behave, and we need to strive for that behavior in our own lives and encourage it in one another if we want to grow spiritually. That's our rule of life. All right, the third question. If we continue to grow spiritually, you know, as we follow Paul's example, as we follow Jesus' example, where are we headed? Let me answer that in a simple sentence. As we grow spiritually, we will become people who want more than anything else to know Christ. Now, that may be a bit intimidating or overwhelming for some of you. Somebody is thinking this morning, I don't even know if I want that to be that kind of person. Honestly, thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for hanging out. Thank you for pushing into this and seeking. I want to be clear up front. If you connect your life to God, that's where he's taking you. That's where he's taking us. We become people who want more than anything else to know Christ. Now, this is the message of Paul's entire letter, really, of Paul's entire life. But let me show you how we get it from this passage, because I really want you to understand what I'm saying here and why. I was reminded of this this week. For those of you who know Katie Harding, Katie is part of our congregation. Katie's a great communicator, and Katie is going to be preaching for us on Mother's Day, so you can look forward to that. Katie and I were talking about the passage that she's going to be looking at, and the same principle occurs there. One commentary called this passage Paul's thankless thanks. His thankless thanks. So I want you to look at what he does because it becomes important for this principle. He thanks them, right? You heard that. In verse 10, he says, I, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. And indeed, you'd been concerned, but you had no opportunity to, sh to show it. And this is a subtle thanks, right? In fact, one of the words that he uses there is anethylite. It means flourish. So the great New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce translates this phrase, this verse. He says, you flourished again with regard to your thought for me. This is big thanks. You've outdone yourself in your concern for me. Verse 14, he says again, and it was good of you to share in my troubles. You feel the gratitude of Paul's heart here. He goes on in the rest of that paragraph. But then, if you're reading carefully, it seems like he's taking it all back. In verse 11, for instance, he says, Now I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Thank you, thank you so much. No, I'm not saying that because I needed it, because I didn't. Oh, you've been awesome in the, in the way you've shared in my troubles. But then he says in verse 17, I, not that I was looking for a gift. I'm going to be clear, I wasn't asking for anything from you. And in fact, I don't rejoice at how awesome you are. I'm rejoicing in the Lord in all of this. Why the hesitation? Why take it back? Paul, can't you just say thank you? This is because of the background that Paul is writing into, especially the ancient Near Eastern Greek cultural background, the background of orators and philosophers. This oration and philosophy in, in the day of the Apostle Paul was part information, and it was part entertainment. It's not unlike 
the 24-hour news channels that you and I watch. It's part information. It's part entertainment. And so these guys would ride into town. I don't know if they rode into town. They would walk into town, and they would find some popular city square. They would go to the city square, and word would be passed around that philosopher so-and-so is going to be coming to speak. We heard he was fabulous in Corinth. So the city of Philippi would turn out because what else have they got to do? They don't have Netflix yet. So they come out. That's literally the case. And I mean, not just literally that they didn't have Netflix, but they didn't have forms of entertainment like this on a regular basis. So the traveling orator or philosopher would come to town and he would stand up and he would craft and weave analogies and, and Greek philosophy and zap the Romans and get a big cheer for that and then um, make fun of Caesar and everyone would laugh and then he would tell a joke and everyone would laugh and then there'd be a poignant moment and, and he would end. And he made his living that way. At the end, almost like a street performer downtown in D.C., hat would be passed or somehow a collection would be made and depending on how good he was, that's how large the, the offering would be. And this was the world of information and entertainment into which Paul walks into town. So Paul goes to the city square in Philippi. And Paul begins to give a speech, much like the traveling philosophers and orators of his day would have given a speech. And yet what Paul wants to say is, it's not about me. It's about the message. It's about Christ. And I'm so interested that you know that. I'm not, I don't want anything from you. I don't want you to give me an offering. In fact, I'm going to make tents while I'm here. I'm not going to take a collection at all because I want you to know it is always and only about Jesus. Paul wants to be sure that they understood this is not entertainment. This is life I'm talking about. I don't care what you think of me. I don't want you to be indebted to me, nor do I want to be indebted to you. This is about Christ. I can do everything through him who gives me strength, through my strength giver, through my enabler. It's about him. I reminded Tom a couple of weeks ago. He said to me at one point on a Sunday night as everyone was leaving after one of our worship times, he said, I don't know if I can do this. And I said, brother, you can because that's exactly what Paul meant here. I pointed to this passage. I've been preaching about this in a few weeks, Tom. And you know, often through the, through the years, I've heard Christians use this passage to say, I can do all things through Christ. I can get rich through Christ who gives me strength. I can have an awesome life through Christ who gives me strength. What Paul is really saying is, I can suffer through him who gives me strength. There's nothing that life can throw at me that I can't do because I have an enabler. I have a strengthener. It's not about Paul. It's not about our entertainment. This is life we're doing. It's about Christ. As we grow spiritually, we become the kind of people who want more than anything to know Christ and to have him. This also means we become the kind of people who are always satisfied because we have what we want. That brings us to our final question. So if this is true, if all that we said is true, and if that's the kind of people we're becoming, where do we end up? What's the byproduct for us? And there's a one-word answer. Contentment. I read an article this week by magazine editor William Falk. 
he was vacationing on the British Virgin Islands with his family and found himself, I think, looking out over the water. As he was looking out over the water at one point, he saw a little island off the little island he was on. He learned that the population of that island was known for enjoying a carefree lifestyle. So this magazine editor decided that's where he wanted to go. So he wrote this in the article I read, quote him here. I have no real wants. If anything, my life is too full. Then he quotes another author. That's precisely the problem, author Greg Esterbrook says in his new book, The Progress Paradox, end quote. Now him again. Most Americans enjoy a higher standard of living than 99.4% of the 80 billion human beings who've ever lived. Yet we're not content. Our lives are characterized by too much of a good thing. Excess at every turn. We're surrounded by so much food that obesity has become a national crisis. Are tempted by so much entertainment and information and stuff to buy that we sleep three hours a day less than our grandparents. At times, it leaves you staring at a four-mile-long island on the horizon wondering what it would be like to chuck it all. I mean, without question, you and I live in the capital of the treadmill world, suburban America, suburban East Coast America. I saw an article a number of years ago that they'd done a study of the fastest-paced cities in America. Of the top ten, eight we're in the northeastern corridor, including Washington, D.C. I think it was fourth. By the way, they judged how fast they were. This is interesting. I can't remember all of them, but it's fascinating. They would film a street at lunchtime, and they could measure the speed of the walkers, how often the average person looked at their watch or cell phone, and how long it took cashier at a bank to do an, a turnaround. Several other things. We live in the capital of the treadmill. We're on it, we're running, we're all bragging to one another almost about how busy we are. Our life is frenetic. How about if we just step off? Because we're not content anyway. That treadmill is not taking us to contentment, P.S. We were designed to find our contentment in a dynamic connection with God enabled by what Jesus Christ has done. We were designed to find our contentment in a dynamic connection with God enabled by what Jesus Christ has done. So let's find it there. Because there's no other source for it, not for the real deal. Okay, today we celebrate Palm Sunday. So, first of all, please come back next Sunday. We'd love to have you. If you're not going to Florida or somewhere to take a break from the treadmill, and taking your kids to Disney World, where it only speeds up, by the way. Please come back. Our services next week will be at 9 and 11. And I want to answer a fundamental question for us next week. That's really important. I said this this week to a group of folks I was talking to about, there's some folks here at Gateway who are interested in perhaps being baptized. I was telling them yesterday, one of the questions that you and I have to answer is, if this story is true, number one, wow, Right, seriously, wow. He walked out of the grave after three days and he didn't smell. I mean, wow, that is amazing. But that's potentially 
the world's greatest historic underline epic whatever. That is the world's largest, most epic parlor trick. I mean, it's crazy, and I want to know the story. I want to know more about it, but what does it have to do with me? Why Jesus, in other words? We're going to talk about that next Sunday. Why this matters, and why it matters to us. What happened? That's the message next week. Please come. But next week, that next week started the week before. Jesus, this time he was riding. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and they are waving palm branches at him, and crowds of people, this was the time of the Passover, crowds of people had gathered in Jerusalem. It was a holiday and a a holy day, and all mixed together. And they'd heard about Jesus, and potentially this guy's the Messiah. There were probably some people who'd heard him speak, some followers mixed in with some just curiosity seekers, and they're waving palm branches, and yay, and here he comes. And, he, and by the end of the week, those cheers had turned into jeers and curses when we crucified him. But today we celebrate the Hosanna of that. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up if they would. We're going to sing one final song, and we've got some palm-waving little children who are going to be coming through here in a minute to demonstrate Palm Sunday for us as we do it up. So we're going to sing another Hosanna song. If you would, let's get ready for that. Stand with me if you would. part of our worship this morning, and not all, of them, not all of them know the words of this song, not, a lot of them can't even read, but they're going to be worshiping, so I'd advise you to do the same. Let's sing this together. Praise is rising.
All our fears are washed away. Sing that again. When we see you, we find strength to face the day. In your presence, all our fears are washed away. Washed away. Hosanna, Hosanna. Oh, we are God who saves. Church doesn't end when we leave these doors. You guys may go in peace.